Hello, I'm Dave, and welcome to the Stand Up Tragedy Podcast. This is the third of three live recordings from our Tragic History Live event that took place at the Hackney Attic on Friday the 16th of May. This is the last part. Next week we will have a Stand Up Tragedy special produced by Bryony Hawkins, which will highlight some of her favourite parts of the night and have some behind-the-scenes footage and interviews. Stand Up Tragedy are taking the tragedy up to the Edinburgh Festival again this year as part of the Free Fringe, but we need your help. We've launched an Indiegogo crowdfunding campaign that you can find over at bit.ly forward slash tragic fringe. We've got some amazing perks that you can get in exchange for funding the tragedy, and no donation is too small to be valuable to us. Another way to support us is by spreading the word of what we're doing to your social networks and encouraging your friends to get involved. You can also support our Edinburgh journey by coming to see our London shows. The next one is on Thursday the 12th of June at the Dog Star in Brixton, where our theme will be Greek tragedy, and our lineup includes a set from the comedian Andy Zoltzman. You can buy tickets in advance for £5 via our Indiegogo campaign. So, come cry with me. Come cry Come cry away. And here's Act Two of Tragic History. Hello, everybody! Welcome to Stand Up Tragedy. My name's Dave, and I'm your host. Uh, what we do here at Stand Up Tragedy is we stand up and we do tragedy. It's as, as simple as it sounds. Uh, and tonight's theme is tragic history. Now, it's, it's going to be a roller coaster of a night, which is hopefully something that you'll all enjoy. I like I like a good roller coaster. So you should expect comedy. You should expect uh, sad things as well, though. So you should expect some laughs. And what we say is we like you to uh, cry until you laugh and laugh until you cry. So be aware of that. We're looking at the tragedies of history. So uh, I should think there's going to be some dark stuff as well as some light stuff, considering you know history and everything. Uh, so <laughs> that's what's going to happen tonight. Uh, what we are is we're a, a live show, as you can see. We're also a podcast, so we record all of this so that uh, people who aren't here can hear it. Welcome back to Stand Up Tragedy Act 3. How are you all doing now? Yeah? We good? Good. Well, there we go. A Christmas song there. If anyone was at Tragic Christmas uh, back in December, they'll know that Christmas is a particularly tragic time for me, so... Uh, I like to hear a Christmas song, it makes me sad. Uh, Which is great, because now we've got some more sadness to come. Uh, As I said earlier on, we've launched our Indiegogo campaign uh, today, so please remember to have a look out for that and uh, consider uh, donating to it. There's some excellent perks, including you get to kind of come and stay with us in, in Edinburgh and all sorts of things. There's some there's artwork that you can get. There's the uh, stand-up tragedy scent you'll be able to own, which we are actually in the process of getting made at the moment. So check it out. It's not just for us, it's for you too, uh, to be a part of getting that tragedy up to Edinburgh. And as I said earlier on, we're also a podcast, so please spread the word about our podcast. And you can find us on Facebook, and we're at Stand Up For Tragedy on Twitter, because somebody else had got Stand Up Tragedy, but there you go. Uh, that's the number four. Uh, so for you, that's, that's where we are. And we like to tweet a lot. We're in fact live tweeting tonight. Um, so, without further ado, put your hands together for the third and last instalment of Liz Bailey! 
this is a bit of a weird one, but a historian friend of mine recommended this for me. Um, and it's the butterfly effect. And I'm not referring to that film. Um, but it's the idea, and this was uh, Edward Lornitz talked about this, is the idea that if a butterfly flaps its wings, it can cause a hurricane. Well, in time travel terms, this tends to mean if you go back in time and you step on a butterfly, you'll completely change the course of either your time frame or somebody else's. So uh, this is chaos theory, and uh, I'm going to play with that a little bit, so bear with me on this one. It's going to get really nerdy. Yeah. So the one that I've heard and I like is... a. Uh, Paul Revere was a really important person in the American Revolutionary War. He rode the horse to spread the alarm, one if by land and two if by sea, and I on the opposite shore will be ready to spread... Oh, I can't remember the rest of it. Anyway, the idea is that the British are coming, he's on a horse, he's going to notify all the militias that the British are coming and we must rally. It's the middle of the night. If this didn't happen, the Battle of Lexington and Concord, which started the American Revolutionary War, would never have occurred. It would have been a mass slaughter. They would have destroyed everything, and that would have been it. So if Paul Revere had never had access to a horse, what would have happened? That's the butterfly effect. Um, some of the versions I like, and this is relevant to this set, is about World War II, and it's let's go kill Hitler. And I'm referencing Doctor Who here, but... Uh, if you go back in time and you kill Hitler, will you prevent World War II? Sure, but there are other tragic consequences that'll happen. In the UK, you wouldn't have the British welfare state. You wouldn't have mass education. So can you prevent a tragedy and cause another tragedy? Possibly. It's hard to tell with the butterfly effect. And uh, this is one of my favorites. This is really nerdy now. Star Trek, the original series. <laughs> There's an episode called The City on the Edge of Forever, and uh, Bones McCoy, Dr. Bones McCoy, my spirit animal, uh, <laughs> he uh, goes through this portal because he's hopped up on drugs, and uh, he goes through this portal, and he does something, but we don't know what, and they scan it with the tricorder like you always do, and then they find out somehow he's changed history, and uh, the Nazis won the, world, the Second World War. Okay, what are we going to do? Well, we send in Spock, we send in Kirk. And it turns out that there's this social worker, Edith Keeler, that he meets. And uh, she's supposed to die in a car accident, but Bones had saved her. And by her not dying in the car accident, she founds this pacifist movement, which means that America doesn't get involved in the war, which means that everybody loses the war and the Nazis win. So when Spock and Kirk go back, they make sure that she dies. So that works out okay. And then finally, back to the future. Marty McFly goes to 1955. He experiences this, and you actually see this in the film, where he's uh, snogging his mom, and that's not so good because it begins to show that he's fading, the pictures of his family are fading, and he's essentially rewritten his own timeline. So what if Marty figures out what's happening, and he stops it, and he manages to get his parents to get together, but what if he hadn't actually managed to get the DeLorean back? He's stuck in 1955, so he doesn't really have a time or place. He goes wandering around. He ends up in Alabama in the States. He gets on a bus. There's a woman who's being harassed by this guy who's saying, give up my seat. I don't want to give up my seat. I'm tired. And he gives up his seat for this guy. Then Rosa Parks, her famous action, 
doesn't launch the civil rights movement. None of that happens. Then Marty goes crazy. He stops the assassination of JFK. He starts the assassination of MLK, which may not have been important because Martin Luther King was closely associated with the stuff that Rosa Parks had done. So if you don't have Rosa Parks and you don't have MLK, maybe you don't have the civil rights movement. So you've prevented one tragedy, but you may have caused a whole lot of others. So what I would say to that is, how do we know when it's an important moment in space and time and history? I don't know. I'm not a time lord. But um, I reckon that we should, if we ever time travel, try not to step on anything and just stand there. Thank you. Um, right. So our next act, uh, you can find him on Twitter, at Ali Mason, which should give you a guess. Wow, some Ali Mason fans in the audience. Put your hands together for Ali Mason! Hello. My sister and I took two sheets of A4 paper. On one, we wrote the word hello, and on the other, goodbye. We got the idea from a Sunday morning kids' TV show we'd been watching in which one of the characters had lost their voice and needed a way to communicate, and we thought this was kind of cool. When my parents came down for breakfast, we greeted them with a silent hello and followed it up with a cheery goodbye, which they took in good spirits. When my gran arrived for lunch later that day, my sister and I rushed to the front door to put our new toy to good use. Hello, we greeted her silently. And then because we had literally nothing else to say, goodbye. <laughs> to our surprise, our grand did not greet this with the same dutiful delight that our parents had done. Instead, she suggested that she had never been so insulted in all her life. That if she wasn't welcome here, she would leave, <laughs> which she did, leaving my dad to chase after her down the street and try and convince her to come back and eat the lunch that my mum had been preparing all morning. Later, my sister and I were required to apologise for a letter, the details of which escaped me. But I do remember the stinging feeling of injustice of being forced to apologize when I didn't think I'd done anything wrong. But nobody knew more about injustice than my gran. She was Jewish and German and came over during the war to escape persecution from the Nazis. She managed to make it out of Germany, but she was the only one of her family who did. But of course, none of that really means anything to you when you're eight years old and being forced to apologize when you don't think you have anything to apologize for. It was a, a common topic of conversation in our house when I was growing up. Was my grand the way she was because of the things that she'd experienced when she was younger? Or was she simply, as she was often slightly euphemistically referred to in my house, an awkward woman? <laughs> Most strongly of the latter opinion was my dad, her son, and if that seems unkind, then it's worth remembering that he was on the receiving end of some of her most awkward behavior. For example, he remembers when he was young, really young, being taken to a um, department store in Bradford near where he lived. 
at Christmas time to meet Santa Claus. And the shop had really gone to town, creating this sort of winter wonderland on the way in, which he and my gran traversed with, uh, with all the hordes of shoppers. And when they finally got to the front and were about to, to meet Santa Claus, uh, my gran suddenly decided that she didn't really want to pay the, the sixpence or whatever it cost. So she turned around and seeing the, the, the crowds blocking her from the exit, she took, a, took one look and said, My boy's about to be sick! Stand back! My boy's going to be sick! At which point the crowd rapidly parted and she was able to drag my dad away. More painfully, I think my dad remembers her reaction when he won a place at Cambridge University. This was uh, not inconsiderable feat for the son of a, a working-class immigrant family in the 1960s. The way it worked at the time, you could either be offered a place if they really liked you, you could be offered a, a partial scholarship if they really, really liked you, or you could be offered a, a full scholarship if you were a genius, more or less. My dad got the middle of these three options. And when he told his mum that he'd been offered a, a partial scholarship at the most prestigious university in the country, face facts Oxford, <laughs> her response was, well, you always were second rate. Generationally removed from the Holocaust as I was, it was hard for me to associate this severe woman in my life with the things that we learnt about at school. It was not a subject she talked about and certainly was not a subject that we were encouraged to raise with her. I did, however, know what you might call some of the more cinematic details. I knew, for example, that when she first arrived in this country, she lived with uh, a wealthy, with wealthy sponsors, the Beerbohm Tree family, along with a young Oliver Reed, who was a uh, son of an illegitimate child of someone somewhere on the family tree. And I knew that from there, she was whisked off to an internment camp on the Isle of Man in case she was some kind of threat to national security. She was a German national after all. And I knew that after that, she ended up in Yorkshire, where within days she was posted on top of the Bradford Odeon and told to look out for enemy planes, all of a sudden, somewhat ironically, uh, vital to the war effort. Now, the internment of Jews uh, on the Isle of Man during the Second World War, I think, is not something that is known about that much in this country for anyone who's interested I can recommend the book The Secret Purposes by David Baddiel. When my dad and I read this book, it gave us a, a framework in which to, to talk with my gran about the subject. We wanted to know, was, was the camps like, uh, how it was depicted in the book? Was, uh, was there a thriving arts community, like the book said? Did she remember the camp newspaper, for example? Did people there really think they were being secretly fed iodine? Knit one, pearl one, was her response. That's what we used to say. Whatever happens, carry on knitting. She said, everything I ever learnt about sex and knitting I learnt on the Isle of Man. <laughs> we didn't inquire any further. 
This conversation took place late in her life in her little house which was as run down as she was. Her greatest fear in life was that she would end up in a, in a home. Such a great fear was this, in fact, that we as a family were banned from seeing my dad's sister unless my gran was there, lest we should start plotting behind her back. She got her wish and stayed until nearly the end of her life in this little terraced house, the same one she'd lived in since the 1950s, which was never redecorated, never updated, never refurbished, just stayed the same like some kind of shabby exhibit in the Jeffrey Museum. <laughs> just as stubbornly it seemed to me she kept hold of her German accent, which was as thick and impenetrable as if she'd never lived a day outside of Berlin in her life. Another reminder, perhaps, of a time that no longer existed. Around about this time, another subject came up for the first time. I went around to visit one afternoon, and she was agitated. And concern was not a characteristic I particularly associated with my gran. But it turned out that the source of her agitation was a worry that I, in my day-to-day -day life, might suffer from anti-Semitism. I assured her that I didn't. I told her that I didn't think particularly it was something that Jewish people had to worry about quite as much anymore. Although in truth, I'm no expert. For one thing, I'm not Jewish. <laughs> but it seemed to soothe her nonetheless. My final goodbye with my gran was in hospital. There was uh, very little brain activity left in her at this point and she would have only a couple more days left to live after my sister and I went to visit her. Lying there in her NHS standard issue 90, she looked very small, very old, and finally very placid. There was obviously enough brain function going on for her to register a certain level of discomfort because I remember every so often she would reach down and kind of start to hitch up her 90, thereby exposing herself to anyone who happened to be nearby at the time. That she did this in front of my sister, who legendarily in my family is so prudish she can't even bring herself to say the word bra in front of other people, <laughs> seemed to me like one final glorious act of spite. <laughs> my sister and I took it in turns to say our goodbyes while the other made a discreet retreat into a nearby corridor. I don't know what my sister said, but when it was my turn, I couldn't really think of anything I wanted to say, so I just sat there in silence. Thank you. Okay, so we have one more performer and then we've got a kazoo along after that. If anybody we've forgotten, get, get thinking about kazoos, but don't think about them too much because we've got somebody else to watch now. Um, so uh, this performer is uh, the first of, of, of the performers I'm introducing whose Twitter handle is slightly different from his name. It's at Keith J. London is his Twitter handle, which isn't a spoiler now for when I say, welcome to the stage, Keith Jarrett!
Hello. Um, so yeah, I, I, these days I'm mostly writing poetry about um, myself. It's usually personal stuff. And so when I was invited to do tragic history, I thought, oh, my concept of history um, is just slightly under 30 years. Um, <laughs> but I realized that actually you can, you can get a lot of tragedy. You can get a lot of history into 30 years because that's enough time for shit to happen and for um, people to reinterpret it and for history to be revised and for there to be disputes and for it to be repeated. Um, and that's kind of where this kind of came from. 10 tragic truths about history. One warm July, a rapist slash terrorist suspect suffocating in his padded jacket strolled, no, galloped alongside the Stockwell traffic. He strode into a tube station and hurdled over the shoulder blade barriers onto the waiting train carriage, hotly pursued by the men in blue. And we know too well where this story leads to, because there are two main uses for history, study and revision. There are three main uses for history, study, revision and repetition. What else would people use it for? for? One restless summer in Tottenham, a week before the whole world learns the name Mark Duggan, several bullet holes are shot through a truth we will never get to know because the story keeps changing. And five, because the story keeps changing, caring whether a politician calls a copper a pleb comes quicker than caring when a copper kills a man with a less than squeaky clean demeanor. Six, the accounts read like poetry, imaginative, elusive, meandering because the story keeps changing and the officer who claimed to witness the politician calling his colleague a pleb wasn't even present at the time. Seven, in the present time the camera always lies. Our lives rely on false evidence and false prophets and forced forgetfulness. Stephen Bogle, Kingsley Burrell, Dell Burns, Donald Chambers, Smiley Culture, Dimitri Fraser, Philip Hume, Cynthia Jarrett, Sean Rigg, Azel Rodney, Habib Ullah, and a list of the lost that could go on for more than 10 minutes. Eight, history is full of omissions. Blessed are they who commit it to memory. Blessed are they who admit their wrongdoings and misgivings and ignorance. Nine, history is revised. In schools, a new slimline textbook portrays the glories of empire. World War I gets a glossy makeover and Blackadder is categorically banned by Gove. On the last day of my GCSE exams, I burn my textbooks and unlearn what I can as the smoke is passed around in a two-puff pass. There are only four real uses for history. Study, revision, repetition, and forgetting, because the story keeps changing. It's riddled with bullet holes. The past is passed around mouth-to-mouth -mouth in tiny, tiny gulps and burns out. Back to one warm July. An out-of-court settlement silences a grieving family. The unfounded rape allegation vanishes from headlines quicker than the fabrication of his padded jacket and fare evasion. The story keeps changing. In Tottenham, a gun is discarded from a moving car just before it allegedly shoots. 10. History never finishes. New shoots spring up. New truths bend around old tongues and legends are split into rivers of allegiances, forked, knived into skin, into lives torn by rifts, collateral damage, refugee statuses and cut like benefits. 
I could tell you that double think becomes spin doctor, becomes PR, becomes self-asphyxiation, becomes death by misfortune, becomes cause unknown, becomes freedom fighter, becomes terrorist, becomes ally. Ally? And on my shelf, stagnating in an overpriced bedsit, a book sits spinelessly waiting to be reread. But I know how it ends. With these four words. He loved Big Brother. Thank you. Yes. Um, oh. So I guess, seeing as I mentioned my, my bookshelf, I'll kind of go kind of seamlessly onto a, another part of my personal tragic history, which is the end of a relationship um, last year, and, um, and just staring at my bookcase thinking, shit, I've got to fit extra books into my case because I've got to get all of my junk out of my ex's flat, um, which is great. Um, so yeah, his history and like, and great, and that's tragic. So on my case. First, the instrumentals. Hi-hats, dirty bass, and a theme I lean back to on a gloomy Sunday. Then the book I'll never read again. My mind too stacked to reach for the shelf, my spine too slack to give it away. There are endings and there are endings. I have a big heart on one of the two Valentine's cards I left unsent. The cellophane wrap reads, blank on the inside. I'll leave them be, like the unspent euros lining the pen pot, along with other foreign objects. Hollow pen lids, broken buttons. I'll leave them, like my headphones, hanging on to the end of a nod, plugged into nothing but this Sunday and the shadows and the phone that rings and rings and knows I won't pick up. Thanks. So, cheers, no need to clap. Ah, that would be tragic. Um, so, um, <laughs> so uh, yeah, I, I like the list thing, so I'm going to just riff off the, the, the 10. Um, and uh, this is going to be 10 ways. I, I like 10 ways because I, like, I write lists every day. Um, and I work at a school and I feel more empowered if I write a list, um, even if I don't achieve even one thing, then, then I have a list, a record. Um, and so that's how I've started writing my poetry as well. 10 ways to avoid hearing him say sorry. One, change the subject. The weather is plentiful. The rain is problematic. The third stare still snitches on you even 10 years later when you try to creep upwards unnoticed. Two, this close up, your dad's head is like the large Dutch pot above the kitchen cupboard. Leave that to stew for a few minutes. Three, in Latin American Spanish, ahorita is an imprecise way of saying not quite now. Fill your tongue curl up on the R. Flick it out like a Swiss knife. Cuatro, no entiendo English. Five, use find and replace to destroy the word or press backspace till your PC beeps a void. Six, beat into it. I'm sorry for those unanswered texts. I'm sorry for ever being 15 years old. I'm sorry for taking the knife out the house. It wasn't like that. I promise. 
Seven. Sorry isn't the hardest word to say. For me, it's world, and the way it whirls empty in my mouth. If you're Yonosuke, the Japanese student I taught, scrawl will sound like a mess of consonants surrounding one lonely vowel. It is one of many things you cannot vocalize. Eight. The search engine told me that in Japanese, I'm sorry is pronounced suminasen. Nine. Lo siento. 10. I'm sitting on the third stair of our conversation in a house I lost the keys to many years ago, sifting through letters that still come in my name, and I want to look you in the eyes and tell you it's okay. So, um, I want to leave you probably with something um, going away from the personal and back out into history, which is big, and sometimes I think it's a, it's a lot bigger than me. Um, it is a lot bigger than me. I'm small. History's huge because it keeps growing. It gets fat um, with other people's blood usually, and um, and this kind of came out of that. Just a series of questions. Tell me what you believe. What you really, truly believe. What rights you'd fight for. Lay down your life for. What you want to strive for, save for, misbehave for, or just be brave for. Tell me what you stand for and what you'd sit down at the back of the bus for. Prepare to make a fuss for, bleed for, cuss for. Tell me what you believe, what you really, truly believe. What do you have a dream for and what would you lose sleep for, sigh for, weep for, starve for weeks for? What would you take risks for, raise a glove fist for, sit down and resist for? Chains on the wrist for, please. Tell me what you believe. What you really, truly believe. What would you stand and block a tank for and receive no thanks for? Just bullets in your chest, no peace, no rest. What could make them want to put you under lifelong house arrest? Please, tell me what you live for and what you die for, lie for, kill for. Surrender your will for. What would you give your last resource for? Throw yourself under a horse for. Prepare to be jailed for 27 years and no bail for. Please. Tell me what you believe, what you really, truly believe. What would you sacrifice your life for? Get scarred with a knife for? Be put behind bars and risk your children and your wife for? That's your boyfriend, girlfriend, civil partner, your siblings too. What can't you turn a blind eye to because it ain't right to you? Is there something that would make you go to lengths you're not used to? Make a stand even though you know people aren't going to like you? Please, tell me what you believe, what you want, what makes you breathe. What would you speak up for? Is there anything you give a fuck? for I thought so I thought so Keith Jarrett everybody I've been trying to get him on for ages so I'm so pleased to have him on the stage finally He's a busy man, so it's, he's hard to catch like a slippery fish. Now, what we're going to try and do now is we are going to try and do a sing-along with involving kazoos. Uh, first thing first, I'm going to need to grab my guitar, so you have to just bear with me one moment. Yeah, somebody once described this bit of the show. I'm going to unplug this now, Harv. Is that going to make a big sound? Right. One, uh, somebody once described, a reviewer described this bit of the show as like assembly time with a, a slightly mad RE teacher. 
I'll take that, to be honest, apart from I'm not too keen on the map. I mean, I am a bit, I am kind of technically a little bit mad, but uh, I don't really like that as a word to sort of like describe uh, what's going to happen now, because what's going to happen now is, is going to be great. Uh, and, it being, and, you know, madness has got lots of complications to it. Anyway, I won't digress on that. I need to plug in my guitar. Liz, are you out there? Could you come over here and distribute some kind of percussion instruments that I've got hidden down the side there? Uh, this is definitely, definitely sounding more and more like uh, that RE teacher thing. Right. <laughs> so, yes. Uh, some of you will have noticed you've got bubbles on the tables in front of you. Uh, some of you have been blowing them. Because they're, they're going to come in, in handy in this song now. So, uh, yeah, so, so get some percussion instruments. So basically, there's a, there's a few things to know, though. I'm giving you the percussion instruments, but I need to tell you, I need to tell you uh, that you're not to use them till the end. That's just how it works. I mean, okay. Uh, now, is, is there some kazoos down there as well? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, in a in a right. So we're gonna we're gonna do a little practice. So nobody's brought up a kazoo. Somebody's brought a kazoo. Ida's brought a kazoo because she's in the team. Uh, right. Good. Now anybody who's never used a kazoo before, there's just the, the thing to know is don't blow in it like it's a trumpet. Talk into it or sort of sing into it. Because if you blow in it, it just sounds like this. That ain't that ain't very satisfying. Um, right. I'm gonna. Okay. Um, you, you young man, could you grab a couple of kazoos there and throw them out into the audience? There's only two. Um, that's, how, that's how my bucket stretches. Uh, so, if you haven't got a kazoo, you can hum, right? So I'm going to teach you the bit we're going to be doing. So this is like the practice bit where we learn the, uh, the kazoo part. You can hum, you can whistle, you can do whatever you want uh, to, to do the song sound. This is the choruses as well. It's very complicated. Basically, when I play kazoo, you're going to play kazoo or hum. It, it'll become clear. It'll become clear. But I'll teach you the kazoo part. Because the kazoo part goes like this. You got that? Yeah? Do you want me to do it again? Kind of goes... Like that, right? I make, my, I make the rod for my own back, you know, in performance. So that's, what we, that's the chorus. Basically, when I do that join-in hum and stuff, uh, the outro as well, oh God, how does that go? <laughs> it goes like, it goes. Oh, I tell you what, we'll learn the outro when the outro comes, because I'll go around it lots of times, but you've got to join in with that bit. So cues that you need to know is, when um, I say, and the kazoo goes, or I start playing the kazoo, that's when you do the kazoo bit. When I'm not playing the kazoo, don't, don't do anything. Um, and when I go, when, when, it, when there's obviously supposed to be a percussive sound, I'll start doing some percussive sounds with my voice. That's when you can sort of go, like you can either go bang, 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 like I'm gonna do, 
or you can uh, bang some stuff like tables, uh, not not people, not other people. Um, right, and the the bubbles cue will be obvious because I'll talk about bubbles. So at that point, it'd be nice if the bubbles happened then rather than earlier because it would kind of be more dramatic. But at the same time, I know I can't control you. You are audience members. So um, I should explain what we're doing. So this song is a song I wrote about um, about. Well, kind of about the aftermath of the Iraq war. So we're kind of moving... Yeah, that's what I'm going to do, a sing-along now to that. Um, so basically, uh, there's, a, there's a brilliant book that I've got over there that I would hold up, but I, I'm not going to, called Don't Shoot the Clowns by, by uh, Jo Wilding. And uh, she wrote that about uh, her experience of going over to Iraq um, after we, we fucked things up over there. Um, and she thought, what can I do? What can I do to help... Uh, that situation and she looked at the world and she thought there's not very much I can do history is pretty tragic so she thought I know what I'll do I will find a circus group of people to, to go and do circus stuff uh, for the children of Iraq so that's basically what she did she, she got a circus troupe together and she went through war zones kind of ex-war zones internment camps and stuff like that uh, doing that sort of thing um, so we're going to try and make a beautiful thing happen now together about that um, it's about what happens after tragedy, so it's not all sad. Uh, I've given you my cues. I've explained what it is. I guess the last thing to do is to play the bloody song then, isn't it? Okay. So this is called Circus to Iraq. Uh, and this is how it goes. Think of the spark of an LED in the dark. That's why I'm taking a circus into the heart of Iraq. Thank you. 
lost her own finish guys very good give yourselves a round of applause thank you very much for making my sort of kazoo along happen finally in my life i've always been looking for a kazoo along in my life so uh thank you everybody for coming you don't have to rush off home the bar's open for a while yet and we can stay here and talk of tragedy in fact write some tragedy tragic history in the book because not very many people have done that so far uh 
Yeah, so you, our next show is on the 12th of June at the Dogstar. It's Greek Tragedy with Andy Zaltzman, Joz Norris, The Helen Project, David Lee Morgan, Tricity Vogue, and so much more. Share and spread the tragedy. You can find us on Twitter at StandUpForTragedy. You can find us and friend us on Facebook where we're Stand Up Tragedy. The podcasts are available through iTunes, Stitcher Smart Radio, and SoundCloud. It's time to go. Find them, share them, listen to them. We've got a whole back catalogue of shows up there for free. It's the end of the show. Free audio to listen to in whatever way is most convenient to you. Dry your eyes, it's time. Become a part of the tragedy. Help support the tragedy by contributing to our Indiegogo campaign. Which again, you can find at bit.ly forward slash tragic fringe. It's time to go. Our next show is on the 12th it's of time June to go. at the Dogstar in Brixton. It's Greek tragedy. It's going to have Andy Zaltzman and a hell of a lot of other Brilliant performance, bringing you some classic tragedy. And for now, the tragedy is over.